1: I visited Rithin Castle because of the rumors about its ghosts. I was freelancing for one of those skeptical magazines, writing an article disproving paranormal activity. I'd already knocked down two haunted places. Rithin was the last spot on my list. I checked my notes beforehand. Psycho axe-murdering wife kills husband's lover. Haunts place for hundreds of years. Hmm many reports of seeing her, yada, yada, yada. All of it was vague and nonspecific, like most ghost stories. I got to Rithman at sunset. The friendly check-in clerk wore a bright blue uniform. She gave me a few suggestions and said if I wanted to see the gray lady, just follow the hallway on the left to the banquet hall, adding, she's always looking for her axe. I told the clerk I read the guidebook, and there was no banquet hall at Rithin Castle. She frowned and shook her head. If you don't find her, she'll find you. That night I walked outside on the castle grounds, the October dew chilling my bones. But I saw no specters, no ghosts. This article was as good as done. Another case of ominous buildings making people's imaginations run wild. It was midnight. I walked inside the castle to head for bed. But impossibly, as I approached the entry, the light had changed to daytime. The check-in desk had vanished. The lobby wasn't a lobby anymore. Everything that made Rithin a hotel was gone. Before me stood an ancient, cavernous entryway. I felt the cold British wind at my back. No sun. What the English call cloudy bright. The sky was slate gray, and I was alone, except for a strange presence coming from what I knew immediately to be the banquet hall. I didn't want to, But something forced me to turn my head, and there she was, a pale, translucent woman, all in gray. She was pushing chairs and tables aside, frantic to find something. Sitting next to her was the hotel clerk, eyes rigidly fixed on me. I pressed a finger to my lips, begging her to be quiet. The clerk smiled, eyes gleaming with madness. She coughed loudly. The gray lady looked up, her eyes completely white, no pupils. She floated toward me in no particular rush, but I was transfixed and could not move. She swooped closer. Her head didn't sit right on her neck. It seemed to rock back and forth, as though attached at the spine, but nowhere else. As she approached, her mouth opened in a grotesque smile, displaying rotting, blackened teeth. When I woke up, the memory lingered on my mind. A gray and phosphorescent image burned into the back of my eyeballs. Every time I sat down to write the article, that image flared a searing headache to life. So it sits there now, unfinished on my laptop, with only one line written. It reads, This is Rithin Castle's Greatest Secret. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Rithin Castle, a castle turned resort in the United Kingdom, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. If you can't get enough haunted places, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network, or on our website, parcast.com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, wherever you're listening. Rithin Castle's towers loom over the forest that surrounds it in Wales. Of its original five towers, only three remain. The walled moat, now dry, runs alongside River Clwyd. Ivy snakes over its walls. Sitting just 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, away from the swirling Irish Sea, the castle was historically well-positioned to defend Wales from potential invaders. That's probably why King Edward I gave the land to Dafydd ab Griffith in 1277 in the first place. The king chose Dafydd because he had betrayed his Welsh kinsmen and helped Edward during the invasion of Wales. Edward appreciated this treachery. Rithyn Castle was doomed from the start. How could a castle birthed in treason not have ended up haunted. Daph set his men to work, building a castle to make the king proud. But even the support of the king was not enough to stave off the dark events that swirl around Rithin Castle to this very day. The stone structure might seem inviting at first. The sandstone walls glow a friendly shade of red as the sun sets but its solid appearance can be deceptive. Because inside its walls lingers the tragic memory of a woman who lost everything. It's 1282. You work in Rithyn Castle as a chambermaid for the Lady Grey. She's the wife of the steward of Rithyn Castle. The steward, Lord Grey, has a very important position He's in charge of the castle while the Lord is away. The steward's word is law. It's your job to sweep the floors of Lord and Lady Grey's chambers, clean and replace the straw, and spread herbs around their rooms to keep it clean-smelling. Lady Grey is stern, but not cruel. She's proper, correct. She likes things done a certain way. You eat well and your straw bed is clean and well cared for. You have no idea what is about to shatter your world. Lately, you've sensed some tension between Lord and Lady Grey. Nothing out of the ordinary. Married couples fight sometimes. You've also seen Lord Grey being friendly with another servant, a girl who works in the kitchen as a scullery maid. And then... Comes the evening you will never forget. You brought the straw mats down to dry them out earlier today, and you've just finished beating them outside. You haven't seen Lady Grey in a while, but this is normal. Castle business often keeps her busy. Perhaps she's preparing to host another banquet. She likes the banquet hall. You carry the mats past the banquet hall, up the main staircase to Lord and Lady Grey's chambers. But as you get closer to their chamber, you can hear moaning. You walk more quickly. You're almost running. You enter the room slowly, closing the door behind you. You can't understand what you're seeing at first. The bedspread and floor are stained red. Blood. So much blood. And, oh God, a woman sprawled on the ground. Her head is nearly severed from her body. Her eyes stare at you, unblinking. You know this woman. It's the scullery maid. Lady Grey stands there, holding an ax that drips with blood. There's blood on her gray dress, but she does not appear to be injured. I had to, Lady Grey says. She was with my husband, making a laughingstock of me. This will teach them both a lesson. Now she looks straight at you. Help me, she says to you. Please, help me. But her eyes say something else. Bloodshot, rage-filled. She moves toward you, raising the axe. Somewhere, someone is screaming. The screams are coming from... They're coming from you. You are screaming. You back away, out of the lady's chamber. You will never be the same. You shut the door. The castle guards run past you. You sink to the ground, quietly sobbing. Lady Grey is sentenced to death for murdering her husband's lover. You cry when your lady is sentenced, but she does not. Her face is expressionless. Two days later, she's marched to the executioner's stone. You try to get on with your life. You've moved to the kitchen. You are now a scullery maid. It's a step down, but you had no other options. And after all, The castle needed a new one. No one blames you, but no one talks to you either. Then, late one night, restless, you walk from your quarters to the banquet hall. You see a figure standing at the head of the banquet hall, wearing a gray dress. Lady Gray. Impossible! She's dead! You heard the axe fall. Help me, she mouths to you. Help me. But her eyes are so angry. Her eyes will stay with you forever. Centuries later, Lady Grey's restless spirit still roams the castle grounds, cursed for her monstrous crime, still seeking vengeance or the eternal rest one can only get by being buried in consecrated ground. Some historians place Lady Grey at the time of Edward I himself, in the year 1282. A few think the events happened in the 15th century, but everyone agrees on what happened. She was the wife of the castle's steward. She murdered her husband's lover with an ax and She was executed two days after. She may have been dead, but she wasn't done with Rithen Castle and those who stayed there. Not by a long shot. The priest denied her burial in consecrated ground, which meant that her soul would not even be allowed to enter heaven, but would be condemned to wander the earth forever. It was standard practice for everyone, even criminals, to be buried in sacred ground. The priest's harsh judgment can only be explained by the severity of her brutal crime. The problem with denying someone eternal rest is that the spirit of that someone grows restless. And the Lady Grey was very restless indeed she would haunt Rithyn throughout hundreds of years of turmoil. She's been seen in the banquet hall, on the battlements, the old chapel, and even wandering the grounds outside the castle walls. However, she's not Rithyn's only spirit. In the year 1400, more than a century after Lady Grey's execution, one Welshman, Owain Glindor, had had enough of the English occupation he began a stunning military campaign to make Wales independent. His first move on September 16th was to burn the town of Rithyn to the ground. The Welsh rebels fought to get inside the castle, but they were forced to retreat. Not all of his soldiers escaped. A few were captured by the castle forces and dragged to Rithyn's dark, foul prison. The terrors these soldiers encountered inside made them grateful the siege failed, if only to spare their brothers in arms the ghastly fate they suffered at Rithin Castle.
0: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some...
1: In the year 1400, the revolutionary Welshman, Owain Glyndor, tried to sack Rithyn Castle, as he knew it would offer a key tactical advantage in his coming campaign against the occupying English. However, the siege of the castle failed, and many unfortunate Welsh soldiers were taken prisoner. After their capture, two of these soldiers, Aaron and Conway, shudder in their cell for hours until night falls. The cold chills their bones. They sit, preparing their minds for the maltreatment saved only for military enemies until they hear someone approaching. Guards wearing castle armor enter the jail. They unlock the cell where the two traitors are kept. They grab Aaron, force him to take his armor off and haul him out. He knows not to ask where they're taking him. Such a question would be futile. Conway sits in silence, hearing his brother-at-arms dragged away. Soon, he must listen to the brutal crack of a whip and Aaron's howls of pain. The two guards return to give Conway a choice. He can join Aaron in their whipping pit, or he can go to the other pit Conway knows how tough Aaron is. He always won their wrestling matches at camp. Thinking about Aaron's screams, he chooses the second option. Nothing could be as bad as the whipping pit. The guards nod. One of them lights a torch. They let Conway keep his armor on. They take Conway through a set of underground passages that seem like they will never end. A rough staircase seems to spiral on and on into the blackness until finally they reach the next level down. The floor is gravelly under Conway's feet. Conway starts wondering about his armor. His heart leaps. Are they going to let him go? As the guards walk the soldier through the dark, foul-smelling underground corridors, he can hear something. Water. He grows concerned. The guards bring him to a locked wooden door. He can see from the flickering torchlight that the bottom of the door is starting to rot. He can smell something, dank and foul. It smells like Rithin's moat that he and Aaron could not cross, the moat that now held the corpses of their fallen comrades. The guards open the door. The floor is water. To be precise, there is no floor. This is a pit that has been completely filled with water from the moat. Now Conway realizes, to his horror, why the guards let him keep wearing his armor. He tries to protest. He has surrendered. He will behave. He will be a model prisoner. But the taller of the two guards smiles. It is not a friendly smile. The guard says just two words, drowning pit, and gives the prisoner a hard shove. Conway's feet do not touch the bottom. Everything is dark, but he knows this pit goes deep. He tries to keep his head above water, treading water furiously against the waves. The guards tower above him in the doorway, just watching. He rips off one of his gloves and struggles against the water. Maybe if he can swim back to the doorway, pull himself up, but he can't reach his boots. He tries to unbuckle his chest plate, but he can't even get his other glove off. It is so cold he feels himself starting to sink beneath the icy water. Conway pulls his head above water for what might be the last time. He sees a sliver of torchlight, but the door is closing. No, please. The laughter of the guards rings in his ears as the door slams shut, trapping him inside. Conway tries to breathe and swallows the unmistakable metallic taste of watery blood. He's choking. His armor is too heavy. Panic races through his body. He tries to swim for a wall, but there is nothing to grab onto. But then, a moment of hope. He breaks the surface close to a hidden handhold in the wall glorious air fills his lungs. He grips the ledge, and he can feel his body relax. The guards are gone. He might be able to escape. But suddenly, he feels something tugging at him. Hands. Human hands. Cold human hands. Even through the armor, he can feel their distinct and bony grip. His numb fingers barely grasp the wall. The spindly fingers wrap tighter around him. He can feel the joy and laughter in them as his life gives way. Relax, a ghostly voice says. The voice is that of a woman. A woman who has already been at Rithin for over 100 years. Conway feels his body melt into the voice. He tries to resist the temptation to sink, but the hands are everywhere, shoving his head underwater. He tugs at his other glove one last time, but his fingers are freezing. He cannot move them properly. He gasps, feeling himself release from the slimy and wretched wall. He disappears below the water. His vision goes black. There's the cold, chilling laughter of a woman. Then all is silent. Although the Lady Grey is Rithin's most famous ghost, it is not its only spirit. Many visitors have reported seeing a soldier with armor on. Sometimes the soldier is pacing back and forth like he's trying to escape. But there is one detail consistent in all their sightings. The soldier has only one glove. Because of its stature as an ideal military post, Rithen Castle has always played a significant role during wartime. In 1648, Great Britain was being torn apart by Civil War. Oliver Cromwell, leader of the forces of the British Parliament, was a man of action and a keen military strategist. He knew how valuable castles could be, especially one right in the heart of Wales. Yet Cromwell, with Parliament's approval, ordered Rithen demolished, allegedly to prevent the castle from being occupied by hostile forces. Why destroy a castle when you can simply seize it? Even the fearless Oliver Cromwell might have been scared of something. I like to think that when Cromwell laid siege to Rithin, he had an encounter with Lady Grey that changed his mind. After Oliver Cromwell destroyed Rithin, the land would lay vacant for almost 200 years until its newest owners, the Middleton family, decided to rebuild it on the same location as the original in 1826. Never a good idea with haunted places. Rebuilding Rithin took over 50 years, laying down new gardens and grounds, sprucing up the ruins. And in 1876, when the castle was restored to its former glory, the town of Rithin, in need of a jail, chose to use the rebuilt castle. But just four years later, in 1880, Rithin Castle was once again a magnet for supernatural tragedies. The castle jailer was the victim of one such tragedy, or more specifically, it was his daughter named Josephine that suffered the terrible curse of Riven Castle. She was nine years old and the light of his life. On a warm August night in 1880, a coach pulled by two horses was headed for the wine vault's pub, which had a stable where weary travelers could rest their horses. It was late. The coachman was in a hurry to get to the wine vaults. The sun had already gone down, and he'd heard there were bandits on the road. Besides, his master wouldn't like it if he was late. But he knew these horses. They knew the road. Josephine was independent. She liked to wander the streets of the town. People knew her from her golden curls of hair and her laugh a light, pleasant sound that suddenly made your heart lighter. That evening, Josephine had gone exploring. It had gotten dark, so she turned to head back to the castle. She headed up the road that led to the castle, approaching the wine vaults Inn. The coachman maneuvered the horses down the street, but they were suddenly skittish, snorting and stomping the cobblestones like the devil himself had gotten into them. He tugged at their reins and cursed for them to move onward, but they would not budge. Then he saw a sight that would haunt him for the rest of his life. A woman, all in gray, speckled with blood, boasting dormant, terrible eyes. The horses shrieked, rearing on their hind legs, Their eyes rolled back in their heads. They pulled in two different directions, almost splitting the cart in half. But then the lady in gray pointed at the wall at the inn where a girl with golden curls sauntered happily along, oblivious to the struggles of the coachman. It seemed the lady's outstretch changed the horses. They calmed from their bucking and snorted. Then they charged. Teeth clenched in determination, like beasts from hell. The coachman yelled and pulled so hard that the reins began to shred the skin of his palms. But it was futile. And then he saw the girl with the golden curls, right in the path of the stampeding coach. The horses headed right at her, and the coachman realized, with great horror, that they knew exactly where they were going. The wheels of the coach crushed poor Josephine against the wall. She died instantly. Since that terrible night, multiple people have reported that late at night, they've seen a young girl with golden ringlets walking up and down Upper Cluett Street, and giggling. (laughs) But her feet never touch the ground. They remain suspended in the air, as though she dances in a place between worlds. Perhaps everyone thought they were safe from Lady Grey, because they were no longer on Rithin's grounds, but out of the many streets in the town, only one of them is named Castle, a street that to this day houses a pub that was once an inn, a pub that has kept the name Wine Vaults for over a hundred years. Rithin Castle was privately owned by the Cornwallis West family until 1923. The Cornwallis West family evolved from the Middleton family, who rebuilt the castle in 1826. However, when they had to sell the castle for financial reasons, Rithin would reopen as England's first private hospital, focused on treating obscure internal diseases. By opening its doors to hospital patients, Rithin Castle was about to expose many unsuspecting victims to some of the nightmarish secrets that lurked behind its walls for hundreds of years. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to Haunted Places. Dr. Edmund Ivan Spriggs was a good doctor Widely respected and dedicated to his patients, he was a large man with sandy hair. He, his wife, and their two young daughters were living in Banff, a Scottish town on the coast, when he was offered the position as lead doctor of the new Rithin Hospital. However, his life in Banff was peaceful and structured. The doctor was in no particular rush to leave that serenity behind. And then one day, tragedy struck. The waves of Banff can be fierce, and the winds can spring up without warning. The Spriggs girls had been cautioned not to play on the beach, but you know how children can be. It might have been dangerous in the water, but as long as they kept to the sand, they were safe. The sky was cloudy that day, cloudy bright. The two girls were building a sandcastle. It had five towers. It even had a moat. One of them dug a hole behind the walls of the castle. Some might even call it a pit. If the light hit the castle a certain way, the walls looked slightly red. They were getting ready to head back to the house when they heard a noise in the waves, a flash of light, something metal. They could add it to their castle. Whatever it was seemed heavy, was cylindrical, and it was floating toward them. Their father had warned them about going in the water unsupervised, but the metal cylinders seemed to be calling to them, ancient music tugging at their minds. And it was so close, the daughters waded from the safety of the sand into the ankle-deep water to grab it. The waves parted a little, and they saw that the cylinder had an armored glove at its end. It was an arm. An arm that did not seem to float naturally with the current of the ocean. The girls approached, entranced. The armor somehow looked both old and new. And then the other arm emerged from the waves. An arm with no glove and a bare hand, green slime-covered, half-rotted away. Both arms thrashed toward the children, as though grasping around in the dark. The girls screamed, and they turned to run, to get back to the sand, where it's safe. But after a few steps, still in the water, they are stopped. They strained against the thing that held them, but the gloved hand grabbed one, and the rotting hand grabbed the other, They screamed for help, but no one can hear them. There was splashing, and then nothing but a horrible silence. Later that day, Dr. Spriggs went for a walk on the beach, only to discover a horror that would haunt him for the rest of his life. Both of his daughters were laid out on the beach, dead, drowned. He could no longer stay in Banff, haunted by such a terrible tragedy. And he accepted the position at Rithin Hospital. Rithen Castle's cursed influence, it seems, can stem far beyond the boundaries of its walls. Despite his terrible loss, Dr. Spriggs was able to immerse himself in his work at Rithin. At first, converting the castle into a hospital kept everyone busy. When renovations were finished, the clinic could take up to 64 patients. Due to the unusual nature of illnesses treated, all patients needed a doctor's recommendation to be admitted to Rithin. Edmund Briggs recruited a lot of people to work with him at Rithin Hospital. He ran a tight ship, insisting that all his employees, from secretaries to assistant physicians, strive for perfection. Most of the patients treated at Rithin came out feeling better, physically at least. There are whispers that some patients suffered an unexplained increase in nightmares, but nobody believes the doctor or his staff was responsible for that. The castle did leave patients cold. One patient in particular, a mayor of a seaside resort named James, had a particularly rough time. He was a healthy man in his 50s. When he came in for treatment, the doctors could find nothing physically wrong with him. His chest had been hurting, but his heartbeat was regular. At first, he was confined to bed rest, but he didn't like being confined, especially not at night. Strange voices whispered to him through the walls. He thought he was going crazy. When he complained about the voices to the nurses, they told him there was no one in either of the rooms next to him. James begged the doctors to let him out of bed. He needed to be active. He pleaded with Dr. Spriggs and his team for fresh air and exercise. Finally, after three weeks, they gave in and told him he could do one thing outside, golf. Fortunately, this was his favorite activity. And Rithin had a golf course on its ground. That morning, James walks across the putting green, breathing in clean, fresh air. It's a relief to be out of his stuffy hospital room. He's never felt better. And it's sunny out. He makes it to the fifth hole, at the very edge of the castle grounds, far from the prying eyes of his doctors. The sun vanishes and James can feel a chill in the air. The clouds appear out of nowhere, but the daylight is still strangely bright. Strange shadows cast across the ground. One of them seems to move unnaturally, as though it is following him. He shrugs this off, laughing at his own absurdity, laughing at himself for ever hearing voices or feeling non-existent pain out here in the course, this now seems like a distant memory. He tees up his first shot on the fifth, a notoriously long hole with a sharp dogleg left and a forest of tall trees marking out the bounds on the right. James knows his first drive means everything, and he swings hard at his teed-up ball. The ring of the club sounds good and echoes through the fairway. But his ball… something strange has happened to his ball. It almost seems stuck to the ground. It rolls pathetically, hardly to the end of the tea box, and then stops abruptly. (laughs) He sees the shadow that was following him, though now its form seemed fuller, like that of a slender woman. And there is something unsettlingly off about it. It's not the normal pitch black of an everyday shadow, but gray. Like the stone walls of the castle he just left behind. One of its hands extends, resting just below the ball. Help me. He jumps at the sound of the voice, backing away step by step. The shadow's limbs jerk and spasm as it mimics James' movements, never getting closer, never getting farther away. The grass behind it dies as it slithers across the fairway. James tries to back away, but his feet are glued to the ground. Help me, help me. This is the place I need to be. The raspy voice is jovial, almost sing-song-like. The shadow remains at a distance, but he can feel it inside him. Its voice reverberating through his bones. Help me. Frantic, he writhes, desperate to escape. But the shadow is crawling through his body like it's consuming him. His heart is thumping. His skin is cold. This is the worst he's felt at Rithin Castle. Help me, help me, on this ground a grave for thee. He drops to his knees to crawl away, but the shadow is now as much a part of him as his own body. James struggles against it, but he feels himself being grabbed. Icy hands claw at him. Then suddenly, It stops. Everything is quiet. The clouds linger, smearing the day with harsh light. He breathes. It's over. The medical staff found James an hour later, lying on the golf course, dead. The grass he lay in had turned a sickly yellow, and was sprinkled with an odd, gray, ashy residue. But it was the look of pure terror in his eyes that stayed with them. The autopsy was inconclusive, revealing nothing about the mayor's final moments. As the years went by, England expanded its medical services, dwindling the need for private health care in places such as Rithin Castle. The hospital was closed until 1963 when it was converted into a luxury hotel that still stands today. Rithin Castle is a tourist destination. The hotel boasts fine dining and special events. There's even a spa. Most people have a good time when they stay at Rithin. The staff is friendly and quick to solve the few problems that arise, but the dark events from the past linger among Rithin's cold stone walls and haunt innocent visitors unfortunate enough to notice them. A Canadian couple visiting Rithin for a relaxing getaway wanted to memorialize their visit, so they had a photo taken of themselves in front of the castle's entrance. All of a sudden, Both felt a disturbing chill shoot through their bodies, despite the fact that the weather that day was sunny and warm. When you look at that photograph, you can see the two of them smiling on the left against the open gate. But to their right, a curious, inexplicable mist occupies a full third of the photograph. Perhaps the mist was Lady Grey, angered by a happy couple. Or it could have been the soldier with only one glove, desperate for help. Guests at Rithin hear ominous things and have terrifying experiences, especially those who stay overnight on the second floor. In 2009, during Rithin's off-season, Jennifer and her daughter Catherine checked into a room above the banqueting hall. On their first night of their stay, Jennifer was awakened by the awful noise of a woman sobbing in the room above them. She assumed it was just another guest in the castle, until it happened again the next night. This was intolerable. Jennifer went downstairs to talk to the clerk. The clerk, confused, checked the registry. But Jennifer and her daughter were the only guests at Rithin that night. Maybe it was an employee hiding out in the third-floor room. The clerk and Jennifer ascended the stairs. Jennifer could feel her heart pounding in her chest. She looked inside. A dusty, deserted hotel room that hadn't been used in years. Silence. Darkness. No one was there. A rocking chair in the corner slowly creaked back and forth. But that must have just been the wind. Jennifer returned to her room and tried to sleep. But her mouth was dry. Needing water, she attempted to get out of bed. But her body would not budge. Something was pinning her. The unseen force pressed down on her like a steamroller. She tried to breathe, but her swollen throat could barely pull in air. The weight on her chest was awful. Not just a heavy pressure, but like something corrupt was trying to invade her soul. She flailed with her arms, but there was nothing there. She tried to wriggle her way out of the bed. Each belabored breath took more and more effort, as she felt her eyes fog and her vision spot. Fear shot through her veins. She could hear whispers, flashes at the edges of her vision. She could feel the anger of the thing on her. It raged so intensely her skin started getting hot. She knew it was going to teach her a lesson she would not soon forget. She was ready to accept that lesson. Ready to take on anything to end this agony. And then, there were the eyes. Terrible, black, and empty eyes. They scanned her in a way that made her feel violated. Sharp and probing. Panicked, she thought of her daughter. Don't hurt her, please, she thought. Then light flooded the room. Relief, Jennifer could move again. She sprang out of bed. In the glow of warm electric light, her phantom attacker had vanished. Catherine stood at the light switch, watching her mother with an eerie and unsettling calm. Mother and daughter packed up that night and checked out early the next morning, cutting their vacation short. Every now and again, Jennifer felt something odd in her chest. A distant but distinct pressure, like a reminder from another world. Not all the specters at Rithin Castle are malicious. Many castle visitors have reported seeing a large glowing ball of light, almost like a fabled Will-o'-the-wisp. Will-o'-the-wisps have a special meaning in Wales. They're associated with the restless spirits of the dead who can't find their way to heaven or hell. Perhaps that's what those glowing balls of light are at Rithyn and why visitors see so many. Some think of those glowing lights as the Lady Grey herself. Her grave is still just outside the castle walls, It's a small, unremarkable hill covered in dead leaves and stones. Not much of a final resting place. Rithin Castle is a fascinating and enjoyable place to visit. But if you're planning to spend the night, don't be surprised if strange things keep happening. If you hear mysterious crying from visitors who aren't there if you turn to see a soldier with one glove just behind you. And if you're really unlucky, you may encounter a woman in gray who wants revenge, or sleep, or her famed axe. And since she'll never have any of these things, she's condemned to pace the halls of Rithen, spreading terror wherever she goes. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admeyer and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Greg Matchlin. I'm Greg Paulson.